I think we should probably pray. Uh, our Father, you've told us through your servant Paul that all scripture is a breathed out from you and you've given it to us for our good and our encouragement and our growth in Christ-likeness. So please uh, grant us understanding, grant me wisdom as I speak on this text, that you might be glorified and our faith in you and your word strengthened. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one thing I remember from my years in Pakistan was going out to a meeting one time. Uh, I was my American colleague, Nate, and a Pakistani pastor. And the way home, we stopped off to buy some ice creams. So I and Nate, we got our ice cream. We took off the sticky, yucky kind of wrapper. And Nate kept in his car a plastic bag for rubbish, and we dropped the wrappers in the plastic bag. The Pakistani pastor did what they all do in Pakistan, and just dropped the sticky wrapper in the street. The streets of Pakistan are lined with rubbish. Nate looked at me and whispered, uh, will they ever learn? I've thought for a while that different attitudes towards what's clean and unclean you know, vary across cultures. He clearly didn't see this as an unclean, dirty thing to do. <laughs> Excuse the question. Have you ever thought about what to do with a runny nose? Probably hasn't occupied much of your thought, but I've thought about it, and there are different ways to do it. In Pakistan, they just get rid of it like you've got a football game. Uh, Latrell Mitchell or Buddy Franklin doesn't say to the referee, excuse me, ref, can, can I borrow your hanky? They just get rid of it, which is kind of gross, isn't it? I think it's kind of gross. We are far more civilised in the West. We carry for every emergency a piece of cloth. We blow into the cloth, wrap it up, put it in our pocket, and take it home with us. <laughs> and I think my Pakistani friend would think, <laughs> why would you take it home with you in your pocket? How, how gross is that? Point being, different views of what's clean or unclean vary across cultures. Uh, in some cultures, as you know, uh, the floor is clean, so the floor is dirty, so you keep your shoes on. Other cultures, the floor is clean, you take your shoes off. So many different examples of what's, how people perceive differently what's clean and what's unclean. And we all have a sense when it comes to God of being, I think, clean or unclean. You must have seen how in so many religions, water plays an important part. Muslims uh, wash themselves before they pray. Jews wash, Hindus bathe in the Ganges, we baptise in water. When it comes to God, we have an inside sense that we are somehow unclean. I hate feeling unclean. I hate working, wearing dirty clothes or having unwashed hair or unbrushed teeth. I couldn't live in a place where I kind of a shower in the morning. I want to begin the day feeling clean. I love feeling clean. Most true of that physically is true too spiritually. That's what we see here in Numbers 5. How do unclean people live side by side with a holy God? That's the big issue here, or well, right through the whole of 
the first five books of the Old Testament. Psalm 24, verse 3, asks a question and gives an answer. The psalmist asks, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Numbers asks and answers the same question. How do sinful people live with a holy God in their midst? And the Lord provided two ways for that to happen. We saw one last night. The Lord gave a tribe called the Levites to stand between a sinful people and a holy God. To protect the people from the wrath of God that might break out amongst them, he gave the Levites. That was the, the first way to deal with sin in the, amongst the people. The second is a bunch of rituals and cleansings and expulsions. That's what we see here in Numbers 5. In verses 1 to 4, we have three examples of bodily uncleanness. And those imperfections which remind us that we're human and sinful. First, skin diseases, like maybe dermatitis, eczema, leprosy. Second, uh, bodily secretions, probably from the sexual organs, I suspect. Thirdly, touching a corpse. Now remember, all that's written here is symbolism. In the New Living Translation, they render verse 2 like this. Command the people of Israel to remove anyone from the camp who has a contagious skin disease. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, we just come out of the pandemic. In Melbourne, we, have, we, we were the masters of the pandemic. We, we broke the world record. Two, 62 days in lockdown, six lockdowns, way to go. Damn. And you, you couldn't leave the house for more than one hour. In the shops, there were signs there where to stand to keep apart. You couldn't come in from overseas or interstate. You had to go to quarantine to stop this, this disease spreading. And that, whatever you think about vaccination, that kind of makes sense. It's contagious. People can die. Then get, just expel them. Keep them out of reach. That makes sense. Except that's not what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say contagious. It's any skin disease, any unusual eruption on the skin, which, if it hasn't cleared up after a few days, send them outside the camp. Now, that seems, I think, really tough, eh? Some guy or girl picks, they, maybe they touch a flower or a weed they're allergic to, they break out in a rash, doesn't go away, send them outside the camp. That sounds pretty harsh, I think. It's innocent. It's not what you call a sin. It's not intentional. Nothing morally wrong. And they spend days, weeks in isolation. How tough is that? It was tough. But an important symbolical way of saying, God is pure, you're impure, and the two can't have fellowship together. We have the, we have the same kind of symbols. My two boys, when we lived in Sydney, went to Trinity Grammar. Try rocking up as a student at a private school without the school uniform. Don't wear a tie or a blazer. What will happen? Same as here. 
you'll be suspended. That's a tie? What's the big deal about a tie or a, black, a hot day? What's the big deal about a piece of clothing? Look, he's a really good, he tops the class. He's a nice kid, a captain of the first 15 rugby team. Why, why fuss about a, a tie for Pete's sake? How trivial is that? Because the tie uniform is a symbol of things important to the school, like pride in the school, like respect, like professionalism, like conformity, good things. The tie in of itself is almost nothing. It's what the tie, it, it's a symbol, what it represents. And all the rules throughout this chapter are all symbolical. They've got the, the bodily discharge, they're probably to do with sexual organs, like maybe unusual menstruation cycles. Uh, the purpose of sex is to give life. Well, mainly, not, not just that, but, but to give life. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And these discharges stop a woman for a while from being fruitful and multiplying. It's a symbol, really, to remind her, us, we live outside of the Garden of Eden. And sometimes it isn't always life. It's a reminder of our imperfections. Touching a corpse doesn't contaminate you. But death is the opposite of what God planned for us as his people. A few years ago, a 16-year-old boy, Christian boy, died of cancer. Really tragic. His grandfather, you may know of him or know him, was Philip Jensen. Philip wrote this. When we cease to rage against death, we've given up on life. Death is the horrible reality of our life that screams, there's something wrong with the world. Death is a scourge on God's good creation. So to remind people of that, that death is unnatural and a, and a scourge, for a while, put the one who's touched the corpse outside the camp. Not that they've done a moral, some great moral failure, but to remind the world, Israel, death doesn't belong here. So it's kind of symbolical. So they're the, they're the first uh, sins, the skin-deep defilements. In verses 5 to 10, it becomes more serious now, the defilement. It's an inner defilement. You've sinned against your neighbor, your brother or sister. You've robbed them. You've defrauded them. Confess your sin and make restitution. You know the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Uh, they're known to be dishonest, ripping people off. He meets Jesus. He says, Lord, I pay back all I've taken and and fourfold I make recompense. Fourfold. Here, it's payback plus 20%. And if the person you robbed has died, give it to the, the Lord, then to the priest. Because you sin against the Lord. But make restitution. Do what's right. The rest of the chapter deals with the issue of undetected sin. Someone sinned against you, but you don't, you don't have proof They've been gossiping about your work. You, you, you know who it is, but you can't prove it. They've thrown a brick through your window or slashed your tires. You, you, you know it's happening. You think you know who it is, but you just can't prove it. <coughs> or here, more seriously, you suspect your partner, your wife, has been unfaithful. You're pretty sure she has. 
but you just can't prove it. And here there are two scenarios. Number one, verse 12, she's been unfaithful, but it's concealed from her husband, and she's undetected, even though she has defiled herself. Second scenario, she's not been unfaithful, and her husband's suspicions are unfounded. Verse 17, or if a feeling of jealousy comes over him, and he becomes jealous of her, although she's not defiled herself. In either case, the man is suspicious. Just doesn't have hard evidence. Didn't come home and find his wife in bed with her lover. Didn't find on her phone these text messages. So there's been sin, he just can't prove it, but he has his suspicions, and they may be right. The interest his wife has taken lately in looking pretty. The new hairstyle. The new perfume. The new clothes that make her look younger. More and more weekends away. We drove down the road and there he drove by a cafe. That, that was his wife, but who's the guy? She told him she'd be with her sister. And he's suspicious. She's become jealous. She's defiled herself. Well, here's what he should do, said the law of Moses. Now, let's admit, this is a fairly unusual remedy for sin. I think this is a strange passage in parts. Um, and it appears even to the woman a bit unfair and a bit humiliating. I'm never sure whether I should preach on this passage. Just skip Numbers 5. I could do, it's easy. There are 36 chapters in Numbers, I've just got four talks, I could skip this one and you'd never notice. I do, uh, from time to time, workshops on preaching. I did one some years ago on how you preach the Old Testament and I chose to give a workshop on this passage. Halfway through, a woman, an older woman, walked out in anger and tears and wouldn't come back. She told me later that she works with abused women and this passage was just too raw, too hard for her. So I could leave it out, um, except that as I prayed, this I believe is God's word. I'm obliged to preach it and I believe it's good for us. It's edifying. And one problem is it seems so male-centered, the passage. If a man suspects his wife, what if a wife suspects her husband? I think it's probably a more likely scenario. It's the men, we say, play around, more than the women, I think. It's, so what, what does she do if she thinks he's fooled around? We're not told. Maybe nothing, or maybe we're just not told. But it seems so unfair and so humiliating. He, he unbinds her hair, that's a hair fall down, which suggests she's been loose. Then she drinks this foul concoction of paper and water and dust. It just seems really tough on the woman. So what's meant to happen? Hubby comes with his wife to the priest, to the tabernacle, before the Lord. That's the key thing, before the Lord. The priest takes this clay bowl, 
puts water in it, and some dust from the floor. Denim binds her hair. Again, I think, with the implication that she may have been loose. Puts a cereal offering in her hands. The kind of offering you give when there's been uncleanness. While she holds the water, he recites a curse. And the woman says, Amen. In other words, if I've sinned, let I bear the consequences. If I haven't, let I bear the consequences. The words of the oath are put on some parchment. They are put in the bowl. They're mixed up. They offer the cereal offering on the altar, and she drinks the offering, the water. Then God acts. In other words, the outcome is left in God's hands. If she's guilty, your belly is to swell and your thigh to shrivel, literally. Because it's said, the woman sinned with her thigh and conceived in her belly. So the punishment fits the crime. If she's guilty, her reproductive organs are cursed and she can't bear children, which back then was a terrible shame. You know the stories of Hannah and Rachel and Sarah. If she's falsely accused, the mix just goes through her system, passes out. So, what's going on here? Again, it's all symbolism, all ritual. The offering, the dirt, the drink, the words on the parchment, just symbols which carry a deeper significance. And notice with the chapter, the more important the event, the more serious the sin, the more rituals. Like today. Finish high school, get through email your certificate. Finish uni, go to a graduation in cap and gown. And the higher the degree, the more elaborate the gown. In politics, elected prime minister, he goes to the governor general for a brief meeting, is given a license to govern for three years. Doesn't take that long. Crown a king, like we did last week, very elaborate. Spend a hundred million pounds, spend months and months in preparation, 2,000 guests, every, every word scripted, robes, crowns, orbs, scepters, full of ritual, because the king governs for life. The bigger the event, the more ritual. I googled uh, before coming here, Australia Day. How to celebrate Australia Day. Here's the advice. Have a barbie and go to the beach. Wrap an Aussie flag around you and listen to Triple Gem's Top 100. That's how important Australia Day is. So I googled Anzac Day. No joke with Anzac Day. It's full of rituals. Laying a wreath. A minute's silence. The last post. Every part of Anzac, even the word is protected. You can't use the word without government permission. You can't, if you buy a boat, you can't call your boat Anzac. 
You can't. It's illegal. You could call your pet dog Anzac, but I wouldn't recommend it. You'd be in hot water. Of the two days, which is the most important? I think Anzac Day. That's our real national day. Hence, all the ritual. Now, what's the big deal? Anzac's just a word. There is just flowers. What's the big... What, what, a minute's silence? What's the big deal about that? They're always the saying that this, for us, is a special, sacred day. Don't defile it. So we have here in this section far more ritual than in the first two. Because it's a far more serious sin. You know, just you know, touching something that makes you give you a rash, that's, that's to rob, rip off a friend, to be an adulterer, far more, to break faith with the one you promised to serve forever, that's very serious. Only one worse would be to break faith with God. Very serious. And we all know what adultery does to a, to, to a family, to a church. I, I've been to churches where the pastor has, has been an adulterer. I was one a couple of years ago. For 20 years the church has suffered. 20 years of betrayal, sense of betrayal and grief. But they had a service 20 years later for reconciliation. It just had that long-term effect. Now, we don't know what all those rituals meant you know, three and a half thousand years ago. We're not entirely sure what they stood for. But the whole point is this. God and God alone knows the truth of the matter. He saw what happened. He knows guilt and innocence. Leave it to him. Put it in his hands, which is the safest place to be. So the whole thing is summed up in the last two verses. Verse 29. This is how the law regarding jealousy, when a wife goes astray, defiles her, herself while under her husband's authority. So the whole supposition seems to be that the wife is probably guilty. Remember that back then, Hebrews, Israelites lived in small towns and villages. It's hard to hide adultery in a small town or village. It's easy in Sydney. Just book a motel room in Hornsby or Cronulla. In a small village, much harder. At a time when people didn't travel much, and women never travelled alone. So the supposition is she's probably guilty. Then verse 30. <coughs> but when a feeling of jealousy comes over a husband. A jealous husband is a very scary individual. One of the chief causes of domestic violence in Australia is extreme jealousy. For a man to take the law into his own hands and be judge and jury. So to protect the woman, this elaborate ritual was instigated. Don't you lay a finger on her, says God. Don't you go around accusing and abusing her. You don't know. You can't be sure. I do, leave it with me, and I'll bring justice. That's Numbers 25. Whenever you read the Old Testament laws, here's five questions to ask yourself about each law. Number one. 
What was the objective of the law? Answer, to find out whether or not adultery has taken place. Number two, what kind of situation is the law trying to prevent or promote? Answer, to stop a jealous man taking the law into his own hands. Number three, what kind of people would have benefited from the law or been protected by the law? Answer, innocent women. Number four, what kind of people would have been restrained by the law? Answer, jealous husbands. What kind of, sorry, what values, norms or principles are embodied by this law? The protection of the innocent, the vulnerable, and the falsely accused, and the protection of the sanctity of marriage. It's a good chapter. So, in light of all this, what can we say about this chapter for us today? Firstly, of course, the secret sins are known to God. You all know the story of the, the parable of the rich fool that our Lord told in Luke 12. Of a man, a farmer, who plants crops, the rains come, has good seasons, good harvest, he gets very rich, builds his bigger barns, and rather than help the poor with his money, he keeps all the money for himself. He's a greedy man. And one night his life's required of him. The chapter opens with these words from Jesus to the crowd. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that won't be made known. Our God knows the heart of every person and one day will expose them. Then we're told a man from the crowd stepped forward and said to Jesus, Lord, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. He's saying, Lord, I, this guy's ripped me off, my brother. It's, it's, I, I'm, I, I, want, I just want justice. I want what's rightly mine. Tell my brother to give it to me. Our Lord's next words are these. Watch out for all kinds of greed. You see what he's saying? Pal, I know your heart. I, can, I know you. It's not about justice. It's about Greed. He tells a parable about a greedy man, a rich fool. Before all the crowd, he exposes this man's heart. What's hidden, will be revealed. we're told to be, there are thousands there, as he spoke, thousands. And before thousands, a greedy heart is exposed. In my quiet times, I pray all the time, Lord, show me my hidden sins, that I can deal with them. Better have them dealt with now than exposed on the last day. God knows our secret sins. Secondly, this chapter and all the law should make us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can't you see the effect of all these laws is to say to us, God takes holiness seriously. 
Please don't think that because we live under the new covenant, all our sins are taken away, that to keep on sinning isn't such a big deal. That making amends isn't such a big deal. If you sin against someone in this church, don't, you can't just walk away. If you've been talking about them behind their back, stop. Make restitution. I've got a very good friend. He's been in ministry for 25 years, taught in a Bible college, just committed adultery. It's, it's tragic. Now, he's, he's forgiven, he's cleansed, maybe been reconciled with his wife. I'm not, not, not there yet. It reminds me, although he's thoroughly cleansed, it reminds me, this defiles, this is serious. And the humiliation of a ritual is nothing compared to the wife's humiliation. Numbers 5 says, loud and clear, take holiness seriously. Beloved, take it, God, as I said last night, God hasn't changed. Take it seriously. I pray regularly. Make me more holy. But to end on a one sense more positive note, Numbers 5 should make us so thankful for Jesus who touched and cleansed lepers, who touched a woman with a flow of blood for 12 years and made them clean and brought them in from the outside. Who touched the dead corpse of Jairus' daughter and raised her to life. Who met a woman at a well and he knew all about her and her various marriages and indiscretions. Didn't make her drink foul water but gave her living water and a new life. We should be so glad for Jesus, who says, it's not what goes in you that makes you defile, but what comes out of you, out of your heart, then gives us a new heart. We should be so glad for Jesus that we needn't ever feel guilty again. Yes, make restitution, make it right, but know the cross has cleansed you. I, mean, I, I, I teach preachers. When I began this work about 11 years ago, uh, a guy walked into my office. It was 5 o'clock, worked afternoon. A guy came in, three-piece, uh, two-piece suit, well-dressed, briefcase. I said, can I help you? He said, he's a very, very nervous guy, very awkward, kind of, kind of moving around and you know, looking kind of shy and embarrassed. And, can I help you? He said, well, <laughs> I want to learn to preach. I just, <laughs> I just couldn't preach this guy. He can only talk to me, let alone, how, how did you... I couldn't see him as a preacher. So I asked him, well, why? He said, well, my wife thinks it would be a good idea. Because what do you think? He said, Mike, his words were, I don't feel worthy to preach. I don't feel worthy to go to church. I haven't been to church for, I think, about eight years. Ever since I wasn't faithful to my first wife and she left me and took the kids, I don't feel worthy to preach. 
He wasn't just nervous. He's burdened down with shame. How, that's just a tragic story, isn't it? Could he come to MCC, this guy? Absolutely he could. There's one more number for you. You count. Absolutely he could. The poor man, there's forgiveness and cleansing a prayer away. But he's like so many in our world, millions, who walk around every day burdened down by terrible guilt and try to take it away by going to Mass or helping the poor or washing in the Ganges. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You take the guilt away and make me clean. We should be so thankful for Jesus that the day of these endless rituals and expulsions is over. That the floor of our church isn't flooding with the blood of bulls and goats sacrificed every morning because of our sin. Because of Jesus' death on the cross. All we read about in these chapters has been fulfilled. And we're his cleansed people. Pure, faithful, and undefiled. Read Numbers 5 and be so thankful for Jesus. Let me pray. We've read this morning, Heavenly Father, again, of the things that grieve your heart. When we are with each other unfaithful, when we are with the one we pledged our lives to, unfaithful. We pray that even today you might, by your spirit, if need be, convict us of our sin and lead us to repentance and restitution. But again, we are so thankful for him who bore that sin, who became in our place that defiled person and took our sins away on the cross. Thank you for his cleansing and because of this we pray again you just give us the desire and the power to go from this point on and live lives that honour you and please you, lives of purity and holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.